Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. And for this episode, we're doing something a bit different. I'm going to do a so-called watch-along narration of the entirety of the new documentary, Mighty Ira, A Civil Liberties Story, which I co-directed with Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. If you're unfamiliar with the new film, it's a feature-length documentary about the life and career of Ira Glasser, who was the executive director of the ACLU from 1978 until 2001. Now, the film's through line makes the case for robust free speech protections amidst the toughest of cases, including the 1978 Skokie case and the 2017 Charlottesville event. But along the way, you learn about Ira's growing up in Brooklyn and seeing Jackie Robinson break the color barrier in baseball. You learn about Ira's friendship with William F. Buckley Jr. and Ira's path to the ACLU, which led through Bobby Kennedy's office. But you'll also see Ira's first ever meeting with the 97-year-old Holocaust survivor Ben Stern, who organized the opposition to the neo-Nazi rally in Skokie, Illinois. Now, if you haven't watched the film already, you should probably watch it before listening to me do this watch-along dealio. And you can see the ways to watch it at MightyIra.com, which features links to the various platforms that you can watch it. Now, how will this work? It will work by immediately after the forthcoming theme music, me saying, press play now. On the now, press play. And then for the next 98 minutes, I will narrate the film and provide some of the background on the story and the filmmaking process. I was inspired to do this by the official Outlander podcast, (laughs) in which the executive producers of that star's original series narrate each episode in podcast format. Now, my wife and I, we love Outlander, and while we were watching the show, I used to listen to that podcast on my way into work. But unlike the Outlander podcast, I will not be drinking whiskey during my narration, and instead I'll be drinking coffee, so you might hear me sipping that. Periodically. In any case, I hope you enjoy. And again, wait until I say press play now after the forthcoming music to press play. Press play now. All right, this is the introduction of the film. Some B roll shots right here. We're going to get into Ira taking his journey back to the former location of Ebbets Field, which was the home of the Brooklyn Dodgers, his beloved Brooklyn Dodgers, until the stadium was torn down in 1960 and the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. It's an emotional trip for him. And this was among the last things that we filmed with Ira. It was the last thing we filmed with Ira in April of 2019. And we really didn't know how we wanted to begin this film. We knew the general outline of the documentary. We knew we wanted to explore Skokie, Illinois. We knew we wanted to explore his relationship with William F. Buckley and Charlottesville. But we didn't know how we were going to get into all of it. We didn't know how we were going to open up the film. And then it was during the course of our many interviews with Ira, we must have recorded 12 hours of interviews with Ira, that we learned that he'd never been back to the site of the former Ebbett Field. He had told us that he knew that there were apartment buildings on top of it. 
and he always said that he would worried that there would be someone doing their dirty laundry on top of home base where Jackie Robinson used to steal home. And he didn't know if he could stand it, but he was a good sport. And we had discussed taking a journey back there. And this is that journey. This is his first time back to Abbott's field. Now, this was a really cool moment. We're there filming Ira looking at the site of Ebert's Field, and these two young girls walk up to him and ask him and us what we're doing. And this gives Ira the opportunity to say that, well, these filmmakers are making a documentary about me, and I'm showing them a place that meant a lot to me when I was growing up, Ebert's Field, the home of the former Brooklyn Dodgers. And then he explains to them who Jackie Robinson was uh, and what he did there, and they are astounded that on the site that now stands a giant brick apartment building used to be a stadium, uh, a cultural icon in Brooklyn, a place where many people came together. So this is Ira seeing the commemorative plaque of home base. And we must have walked around this building (laughs) 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes to try and find this plaque. We thought it would be somewhere close to the sidewalk, but it's actually on an inner sidewalk right next to the building, uh, coincidentally right near kind of an an office room. And as we're walking around, we meet this bike messenger who wonders if Ira is a former player returning to uh, his old stomping grounds. We explain, no, it's not Ira, but these were his uh, old stomping grounds as a child coming to see the Brooklyn Dodgers play baseball. And this man, this bike messenger, knew kind of the significance of that and uh, stopped to talk to us about it. Brooklyn Bridge right there. We have some more B shots, B-roll shots, wide shots of New York City. Now, let's talk a little bit about this, this song. This song had been in the sizzle reel for the film. This is a song, it's called uh, Man on Fire by Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. It's a song that our co-director, Chris Maltby, had found. And the the lyrics just kind of fit Ira. Man on fire, walking down the street. He's walking down the street in the footage. Uh, And Edward Sharp kind of talked about the meaning of this song at one point and saying he was inspired to write it surrounding the election of the presidency of Barack Obama. Uh, and so if you listen to the lyrics, you can find some cool tie-ins with the film Man on Fire. We are, of course, the production company Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, Fire. And we just love the tune. It's one of those songs that you never get old, uh, get tired of. This is Ira taking a trip to the Comedy Cellar in Greenwich Village. We're filming him as he is getting ready to go record a podcast with Noam Dorman and Dan Natterman who hosts the Comedy Cellar podcast, one of the most interesting podcasts out there. You'd think it'd be just about comedy, but it's about sometimes comedy, but often so much more. And some of the shots that you get outside of the Comedy Cellar and inside the Comedy Cellar are quite cinematic. Now, uh, when we came into the Comedy Cellar, we didn't bring any lights or anything. We just kind of wanted to be a fly on the wall during this podcast. Uh, So it's kind of dark, but it adds a cool little mystique to the the film. 
So that's Chris Gethard, a pretty famous comedian. And Ira is the guest of honor there to kind of talk about his career at the ACLU and some of the free speech controversies that were going on around the time that we recorded this. I believe we recorded this in 2018. And a big topic of the conversation during this podcast was Charlottesville. And you'll see some of that later in the documentary. Ira told us after the the podcast, which you can listen to uh, on the Comedy Cellar podcast's feed, it got pretty hot at times. There was a lot of debate, a lot of discussion. Ira said it reminded him of his days on coming on conservative talk radio and arguing with the hosts. So this, this next segment here is about Ira's early life and his path to the ACLU. And it, it was edited by Aaron Reese, our co-director. He did a fantastic job and he kind of had to convince me to, to do this. I thought this segment might be a little too boring, but people I've talked to subsequently said they love it. I was talking about the 1950s here and the McCarthy era, the era in which people were afraid to speak out, were afraid to attend meetings, rallies, sign petitions, as he says, uh, for fear of being labeled a communist by Joseph McCarthy and his, uh, his friends, I should say. Some parallels to what I was saying here with the current discussion around cancel culture. We have to remember that Ira um, was relatively young during the McCarthy era and kind of came into his own and, and arrived at the New York Civil Liberties Union, his first job at the ACLU in the 1960s during all this dramatic change, during the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, which came a little bit before Ira arrived at the New York Civil Liberties Union. It's a famous speech by Mario Savio about throwing your bodies against the gears, probably his most famous speech from the Berkeley free speech movement days. Roger Craver, who's talking about the Public Accommodations Act, the Civil Rights Act, and the Voting Rights Act right now, was someone who worked with Ira closely at the ACLU. As I believe a contractor, I believe he, he did some fundraising. He's an author and was kind of an advisor to Ira. This is the only cover that we could find of Current Magazine, which was the magazine that Ira edited prior to his career at the American Civil Liberties Union. Bobby Kennedy, um, I honestly didn't know much about him when we began making, making this documentary. I did, of course, subsequently some some research about him. And there was a documentary about Bobby Kennedy that came out around the same time. And I believe a book, which in later shots you'll see sitting next to Ira, uh, fascinating character as Ira talks about someone who worked with Joseph McCarthy on those communism persecutions during the red scare, not someone you think would inspire an individual like Ira to become an admirer. But as Ira says, he kind of changed and evolved over the years after he was his brother, John F. Kennedy's, Attorney General. But Ira, as I subsequently learned, wasn't the only person who was really inspired by Bobby Kennedy's candidacy. It seems like there were a lot of young people in fifth generation who were. Some really good archival footage here that was found by Aaron 
I particularly like that shot. The shot from the convention here is a, is a little bit grainy, but interesting. We pillar box it, which means we put the two black bars around it to kind of improve the quality of the, the footage. There's that book next to Ira that I had talked about before. He honestly had that out uh, prior to the interview. We didn't put that, that book there. So as you can see, Ira in his young life had an interest in politics and getting involved in politics. Some really good footage from Washington, D.C. in the 1960s that Aaron found. The guy who, the gentleman who took this footage, I believe lives in Europe. I want to say Scandinavia somewhere. Uh, we licensed the footage from him. Very nice man. Now, how about this? Ira, interested in working for Bobby Kennedy and wanted to encourage him to run for president, writes him a letter, schoolboy letter, essentially, requesting a meeting, and Ira gets the meeting. How amazing is that? Not something you think would often happen these days. And then they can go on to have this conversation. Bobby Kennedy told him he was premature for him to consider running for president, so he didn't have a job for Ira. And now Ira's telling him about the offer he got from the ACLU in New York, the New York Civil Liberties Union, the offer from his, his friend, Arye Nyer, who worked with him at Current Magazine, but had gone over to be the director of the NYCLU. Ira talking about how he didn't know what the ACLU was. Thought it was all lawyers. Ira, I should mention, is not a lawyer. A lot of people think he was a lawyer, but he was not as the head of the ACLU. A lot of the ACLU's leadership were not lawyers. Uh, Roger Baldwin, who you see later in the documentary, one of the founders, uh, was not a lawyer. Ira Glasser, before he became the executive director of the National Organization, was preceded by R.E.A. Nyer, who was also not a lawyer. So most of the ACLU's history had it led by non-lawyers. And this is kind of a stunning response from Bobby Kennedy telling Ira that he should take the job at the ACLU, convincing him to take the job for ACLU. As Ira says here, it's stunning because Bobby Kennedy wiretapped people. He worked with Joseph McCarthy. But he goes on to tell Ira that the ACLU is a unique organization. Bobby goes to explain the American Civil Liberties Union to Ira, everything that it does, the set of root principles that it supports. And then Ira goes on to take the job as the associate director of the New York Civil Liberties Union that Arya Nair had offered him. And then, of course, Bobby Kennedy decides to run for president. Drinking some coffee here. And then, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. This is 1968, April 1968. And as some of you might know, Bobby Kennedy was in a car on his way to a rally in Indianapolis when he got the news that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And Bobby Kennedy had to give essentially a eulogy to Martin Luther King. He announced it to the crowd that hadn't heard Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. And you can hear this, you can hear in that footage the screams. 
And Bobby Kennedy, it was quite a moving speech because Bobby knew what it was like to have someone close to them assassinated because, of course, his brother, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated years earlier. You saw Brian Stevenson there. That was a big get for us. That was actually the last interview we ever conducted for this film. Brian Stevenson, of course, is the leader of the Equal Justice Initiative. They made that film, Just Mercy, that big Hollywood film about his life. And HBO also had a documentary about Brian Stevenson put out that's very good. Now, there was, of course, unrest in a lot of cities in the United States after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. It's really amazing to see some of the, these parallels with the footage and the discussion, uh, some of the parallels with the unrest in the United States in 2020, the summer of 2020 after um, the George Floyd protests, or during the George Floyd protests, I should say. There's Martin Luther King's casket being loaded into the airplane. Some really moving footage here. You can see how distraught people are about the assassination. So it's the spring, as I was saying, he's getting back in touch with Bobby Kennedy because he's, of course, interested in, in working for him. Bobby Kennedy looks like he's on a straight line to the Democratic Party's nomination for the presidency. Here he is at, I believe, the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, Bobby Kennedy. And yeah, he's shot. This is June of 1968. Uh, John F. Kennedy assassinated, then Bobby Kennedy assassinated just when he was about to win the nomination for the Democratic Party. More footage of caskets being unloaded, loaded, and hearses. Uh, you know, only just a few months after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Must have been tremendous to live during this or live through this period of time as Ira did. And I'm sure some of you did. So without Bobby Kennedy in the picture anymore, Ira ended up staying at the New York Civil Liberties Union. He thought it was going to be a temporary step. And we found this letter from Arye Nyer, of course, his colleague who convinced him to take the job at the NYCLU, <laughs> admitting in this letter to Ira that Ira didn't seem to have a lot of enthusiasm about the t taking the job. A couple decades later, he's the head of the ACLU. Some great archival photos of Ira. There, and there he is in front of the ACLU headquarters in the center. The same I, iconic smile. Nice mustache. So this next segment is the first segment that we have about the iconic free speech case in Skokie, Illinois. And Ira, when he first became the director of the National American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, uh, in the latter half of 1978, thought his, his priority was going to be racial justice. That was obviously a passion of Ira's, but just preceding that, the ACLU was working on the Skokie case and lost a lot of membership, a lot of money. And so organization, organizational survival was kind of Ira's first task. And Ira spent a lot of time working on the Skokie case as the head of the New York Civil Liberties Union, 
after Arye Nair became the head of the ACLU, Ira Glasser took over uh, as the head of the New York Civil Liberties Union. And in New York, obviously a, a large Jewish community that had strong feelings about the Skokie case. So Ira became a key player uh, in the ACLU's defense of its position there. So some really good footage of Skokie, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago here in the 1970s. This footage comes from ABC News, and I love that footage. It's some of the best archival footage we have. You can see there are some streaks coming down it, but it's it's clear it's film, uh, and it's high-quality cameras, high-quality film. You'll notice a big difference between some of this footage in the 70s and the 80s. I don't know what was going on in the 80s, but the cameras that they were using just didn't seem to have the same richness of color that the cameras that we're seeing here in the 1970s that ABC used. And here he is, Frank Collin, the leader of the National Socialist Party of America. Frank Collin trying to organize his march into the town of Skokie. Explaining a little bit about himself. He's a soldier to his doing, doing his duty to his Fuhrer and his commander, presumably Adolf Hitler. There you see the picture of Adolf Hitler in the background. This is Philippa Strum. She uh, works at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. One of the latter interviews we did as well at the recommendation of David Goldberger, who, who you'll meet here in a second. David was the lead attorney in the Skokie case, and he said that Philippa wrote one of the best books documenting the Skokie case. The book is called When the Nazis Came to Skokie, and I gave it a read, and I was like, I, man, we have to interview her. And this is Ben Stern, a iconic man. He is now 99 years old. He just turned 99 last month in September of 2020. As we'll learn throughout the film, he survived, I believe, nine concentration camps, death marches, ghettos. And he was introduced to Ira because his daughter, Charlene Stern, was making a documentary about Ben Stern and his life. And she was connected with Ira, asked Ira for to watch the film. Ira watched the film, and he's like, why do I need to watch this film? Why should I watch this film? And then he later learns that Ben Stern was a resident of Skokie, Skokie, Illinois. And it's quite a moving film, Charlene's. It's called Near Normal Man's 30 Minutes. It's a short film. And you can see here, there's Ben Stern on the left. Now, we didn't expect to find this archival footage of Ben Stern, who was one of the leaders of the opposition to Frank Collin marching in Skokie. We didn't expect to find this footage, but we were looking at some of the descriptions of the archival footage that, in this case, ABC had. And we saw his name pop up and we were like, holy cow. Because we had interf- interviewed that modern day. We had uh, interviewed Ben Stern in modern day before we even realized that we'd be able to see him in 1977, 1978. And there he is with his, his tattoo. And, and that triangle above his, his numbers means that he was considered a, quote, dangerous Jew, close quote. And here's David Goldberger, the lead attorney in the Skokie case talking about how he first learned about this case and was first approached by Frank Collin to represent them because Frank, of course, and his National Socialist Party in America, of course, was 
denied uh, their right to rally in front of City Hall in Skokie. Now you'll see a, a lot of people discuss, oh no, Frank Collin, they wanted, they wanted to march through the town of Skokie. You'll see a lot of the news reporters describe it as a march, but some astute uh, recollectors of history will remind you that it was the permit was just for a rally in front of City Hall, not to march through the streets of Skokie. But even um, David and some of these other folks throughout the documentary will refer to it as a march. Semantics, perhaps. Um, insignificant details, but as I've been reminded, significant to some. More ABC footage here. This is a uh, man, obviously a Holocaust survivor, not happy with the prospect that neo-Nazis will be marching this town after the travesty that was the Holocaust, and Ira describes it here aptly as a nightmare. Yeah, the pushback in Skokie was tremendous. And you can see it from some of these meetings. We'll have great footage of America Hahn, uh, the leader of the Jewish Defense League, later at some of the organizational meetings, uh, taking a very strong stance about their arrival. And then this is Frank Collin, fantastic footage of him walking into the Illinois Division Office of the American Civil Liberties Union. Really happy to have found this footage. Now, David Goldberger will tell you he had authority to take this case on his own, but Ed Rothschild, who was his boss and, as he says, a mentor, ordered him to take the case because Ed had the foresight to know that this was, this was going to be a hot one. And there's America Hahn saying that, you know, if they march in Skokie, the Nazis, they're going to break, break their skulls. There's going to be violence. And then here's some footage of you know, some of the violence that happened when Frank Collin and his neo-Nazis had some of their previous marches. This was a march that came earlier, years earlier, but it's a confrontation with the Jewish Defense League, which, of course, America Hahn, who you saw just a moment ago, led. So this is kind of us setting up what could happen in Skokie. So you can see a lot of police protection, batons, Frank Collin bloodied. Ira will tell you that this is kind of how he cut his teeth defending free speech rights and values. I mean, he had to go into some of the most hostile environments in the country and defend the ACLU's position. Of course, the ACLU ended up representing Frank Collin and his neo-Nazis. Uh, their right to get a permit to rally in front of the city hall, Skokie, Illinois. Ben Stern talking about some of the organization that he put together in opposition to the neo-Nazis, including opening an office and gathering petitions. I think you might actually discuss that later. Some more ABC footage here. Ominous Frank Collin saying that he's going into Skokie. Come hell or high water. Or violence. 
And that segment I should mention was edited by our co-director, Chris Maltby, did a fantastic job. This next one was edited by Aaron Reese. It's just a fun segment, this segment about Brooklyn. When I first saw it, I was just overjoyed with the job that Aaron did here. I was, I was so proud of it. I mean, here you have a, a, lot, a fun playback between Ira and then Norman Siegel. This is the first time you meet Norman Siegel, I believe, who was the head of the New York Civil Liberties Union for many years, I believe, yep, 1985 to 2000. A different kind of life. Kids would go out on the streets of Brooklyn and play. No parental supervision. Come home when the the light street lights come on. And their toys were a little rubber Spalding ball. I certainly didn't grow up uh, like this. Now, I did grow up. My parents would let us out. We'd go play in the woods or in the park and have to be home by dark. No cell phones. But this seems to be on another level. Aaron found some great archival footage of kids, of course, playing punch ball, stick ball, stoop ball. Some good jazz here. Really plays well with the beat of Ira and Norman going back and forth. This is probably the funnest part of the documentary. I really love it. And then here, of course, Going back to the beginning of the documentary, Ebbets Field. That's what it looked like before it was an apartment building. Brooklyn Dodgers. This is where we introduced the Brooklyn Dodgers and what they meant to Ira and a lot of kids of his generation who grew up in Brooklyn. Ira's still a big baseball fan, although now he's a Mets fan uh, who perennially disappointed him, as he's happy to tell you about. The Bums, the nickname. Ira likes to take digs at the Yankees. And then there were, of course, the New York Giants, too. At the time, now they are in San Francisco. So New York lost two baseball teams, the Dodgers and the Giants, before they got the Mets. Anyone who's kind of, anyone who's gone to a baseball stadium before will kind of know what Norman is talking about here. You walk from the cavernous innards of the stadium to your seat, and all of a sudden, the light of the outdoors and the green of the grass comes into full view, and it's it is quite something. So I I had I could that what I what Norman was saying there about being heaven kind of resonated with me. Here's more shots of Ebbets Field prior to it being bulldozed. Now, the, these interviews with Ira were shot in his apartment in New York City. As you can see, he's got a lot of books behind him. And you'll notice uh, they were shot over the course of many different days, and we didn't put Ira in the same outfit. We wanted him to just be himself. And so you'll notice a number of different outfits and a number of different setups for our interviews with him in the apartment. And here's Jackie Robinson, of course, a great hero of Ira's and of many people's. The Dodgers were a heck of a baseball team, as I will be happy to tell you. 
And here we are in Norman Siegel's office, which has a lot of artifacts uh, related to the Brooklyn Dodgers. He is as rabid a Dodgers fan as Ira. And Ira's, uh, Norman's now in private practice. So we went to his law offices to film that interview. Jackie Robinson breaks a color barrier in 1947. I believe Ira was nine or 10 years old at the time, as he says. Now, this is really when we start getting into the racial justice issues in the film. As Ira says, he grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. He never saw anyone black in his neighborhood. New York City had the reputation of being a melting pot, but it was really a, a city of segregated tribes. And you can kind of see that still, the remnants of it in New York City. You can go to Chinatown. Uh, there are, of course, Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods. But the way Ira describes it, it was much, much, much more pronounced back in his day than it is now, or it was when I was living in New York City from 2016 to middle part of 2018. It's Red Barber. We had a hard time finding photos of Red Barber, who was the announcer of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And Ira's talking now about how he learned about segregation. And he learned it through Red Barber announcing the Brooklyn Dodgers games on the radio. And Ira was too young at the time to really have any sort of racial mindset, nine, 10 years old, but he did know about sports and he did love sports. And he learned that his hero, Jackie Robinson, who was on his favorite baseball team was being treated poorly when he would go and play in other communities. And that's where he learned to hate Jim Crow. He learned to hate racism. He learned to hate it through baseball and the treatment of his heroes. Ira likes to say that Ebbets Field was the only integrated public accommodation in the country at the time. I don't know if that's true. It's certainly how, how he experienced it. You can see there people of different races, races, ethnicities in that picture at Ebbets Field. Love the underscore here. I'll talk about that briefly. Uh, Ryan Rapsies and Scott McRae composed the score for this film. Most of the film is original score. We have a few places where we license some tracks, including that Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeroes song at the beginning, Man on Fire, which uh, actually took a long time for us to license because we had to figure out who owned the rights, but we eventually figured it out. But Scott and Ryan did a wonderful job, especially given the coronavirus. They had to actually coordinate the recording of each individual inf instrument in isolation because the musicians could not get together and then put those instruments together in the edit. I challenge you to try and find a place in the underscore where you would be able to even notice that the instruments were recorded in separate locations. It's one of my favorite shots. He says, you know, 
fight still goes on today and stands up and walks away and just kind of lets you sink in how important Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier was to not only Ira and Norman, but so many other Brooklyn Dodgers fans. Some archival footage of Ira here talking about the three gate, two great villains of the world, Hitler and Genghis Khan, putting Walter O'Malley, the general manager, I forget what position he had, but he took the Dodgers to LA. My understanding is it wasn't entirely his fault. Um, Ira would probably correct me about this, but I, I think the Dodgers also had to move because of some politics in New York City. Some awesome photos of the demolition of Ebbets Field, some behind-the-scenes stocks. This is a very moving recollection that Ira has here of seeing the demolition of Ebbets Field. We were really lucky to have this photo of Ira and Trudy, his wife, in the car that we come back to twice, and Ira relaying the story of seeing his cathedral half torn away. We just kind of let Ira get lost in thinking about what the Dodgers meant to him and the tearing down of that field. And then he ends here with a joke. <laughs> which is kind of a lighthearted way to transition into our next segment. Aaron did a fantastic job again with this edit. There was almost, there was very little that we did to that segment after the Aaron's first cut. We come back to the comedy cellar, which serves as a sort of through line for the documentary. His interview there with, Noam Dorman. And this is a very important clip for us because it explains that Ira was not the head of the ACLU when the Skokie case came. Uh, and although he had a big part in defending it, of course, he was not the head and he it wasn't his decision to make it. He came in literally a month after kind of the Skokie stuff had ended and he was there to pick up the pieces. And in the decades after, the 23 years after, uh, as he, when he was the head of the ACLU, he still had to defend it, and he's still defending it today, as you can see. This is, what, 42 years later. So a little history lesson here for people. The Skokie case didn't begin in Skokie. It began in Marquette Park, which is on the southwest side of Chicago, which was near Frank Collins' headquarters. I've got a map here. shows you where it is. Uh, and at the time, there was integration efforts. There were integration efforts in that neighborhood. And Frank Collin, being the white supremacist that he is, did not like those integration efforts. He did not like the white people moving out, the black community moving in. And so, as you can see, he protested. And one of the leading opposition groups was the Martin Luther King Jr. Coalition, which Edgar Jackson led. And the Martin Luther King Jr. Coalition often did battle with the 
National Socialist Party of America. That last shot there, we don't know if that's David Axelrod. So David Axelrod, of course, a close advisor to President Barack Obama. David Axelrod actually was a reporter during the Skokie case and wrote some stories about it. And he's now at the University of Chicago, but that that previous shot there, it looked like David Axelrod, and we've never been able to figure it out if it was. I guess if I meet him one time, I'll ask him. But it looks like him. We did some cross-references with pictures of when he was younger, but we just can't confirm it. Now, this footage here, a little bit grainy, but it comes from John Baguda, who lived in the community at the time that these events were taking place and has hours, dozens of hours of footage that he so generously licensed us to use at select parts of the documentary. I believe this interview with Edgar Jackson comes from John Baguda's footage. Talking about how the Chicago Park District blocked Frank Collin and his neo-Nazis from rallying in Marquette Park near their headquarters. And the Chicago Park District essentially also banned the Martin Luther King Jr. Coalition from marching as well. This is what led Frank Collin to find other places to march in the suburbs of Chicago. And David Goldberger here and his colleagues at the Illinois Division of the ACLU represented Frank Collin to try and get back into the park. Also worked on behalf of the Martin Luther King Jr. Coalition, you know, in fighting some of these permit requirements, including an insurance bond, which $250,000 back in 1977-78, as Ira says here, it's a lot of money. Um, and no insurance company will sell you one. So it was effectively a ban on rallies in some of the Chicago parks. And this is where we get into the history of how some of these permit requirements, including the insurance bans, the insurance requirements were used to ban civil rights marchers in the South. Good civil rights footage here, civil rights marching footage. So Frank Collin wrote a number of letters to the suburbs surrounding Chicago, and you can see in the archival footage here an example of one of those letters. He wrote it to a dozen suburbs. Eleven of them ignored him, but Skokie, the home of the Holocaust survivors and a large Jewish population, Cyrus said, reacted like a bull to a red flag. And this is how the residents of Skokie responded, passing ordinances. You know, there was the injunction, which is essentially a stop order uh, based on obscenities. But then they also themselves passed an insurance bond requirement, much like the Chicago Park District did, to keep Frank Collin out of Marquette Park. Some John Baguda footage here of Mayor Kahan, who was not from Skokie, I should, I should note. He was a, 
leader of the Jewish Defense League, co-founder, but he came in to to fight against Frank Collins' efforts to enter Skokie. And he's he's a soundbite machine and doesn't mince words. He was later assassinated in New York City, I believe. This is a great quote that we found in Philippa Strum's book, When the Nazis Came to Skokie. The ACLU is very busy, but never too busy to stick up for the First Amendment. Norman Dorson, the ACLU president during the Skokie case, 76 and 91, before Nadine Strawson, is a hero. He's unfortunately passed now. Ted Kennedy here. This footage comes from the documentary Traveling Hopefully from the 1980s about the life. It's a documentary short, I believe, 30 minutes about Roger Baldwin, who, of course, was a co-founder of the American Civil Liberties Union. And, uh, you know, it's past now, obviously, but it's a great speech from Ted Kennedy. We just had to use it. You can watch that documentary, Traveling, hopefully. I think you can find it for free on YouTube. And this is a series of the documentary where we explain why the ACLU takes these cases, what it means to be an old school civil libertarian, what it means to, why it's important to represent communists, members of the KKK, as Sheila Kennedy notes here. Neo-Nazis. Sheila Kennedy was a Republican who was the head of the Indiana Civil Liberties Union. She wrote a book. I forget the precise title, but something like, what's a nice Republican girl like you doing at the ACLU? Chris Maltby, who had edited this entire segment here, he edited, edited, I think, all, if not close to all of the Skokie footage, flew out to see Professor Kennedy. She teaches at IUPUI, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, a mouthful there. He flew out to Indianapolis to interview her. She's explaining how they had to defend the free speech rights of neo-Nazis and why that was important. As Ira says, these cases were very common for ACLU affiliates to take. I think personally it blew up into what it was just because of not only the characters involved, Frank Collin, Raven Caney, but also the facts involved. Neo-Nazis wanted to rally in a town of with a large number of Holocaust survivors. This is more footage here of the Traveling Hopefully documentary where the co-founder, Roger Baldwin, says this is an open and shut case. This is clear cut. Roger Baldwin says we got we to gotta defend these rights and the neo-Nazis should have the right to parade, however offensive. And then Ira takes it to the next level here talking about how if you ban the neo-Nazis from marching today, tomorrow... They'll be stopping civil rights marchers. It's all about power in his mind. Why would you trust those in power who have subjugated you for so long with the power to censor? Here's Nadine Strawson's first entry into the documentary. She was president of the ACLU from 1991 to 2008 after Norman Dorson, providing some historical context. And I love this speech. This is Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech about the importance of the First Amendment. And here he is pushing back against what he calls a legal injunction that prevented he and his fellow civil rights activists from marching in the South. This is Martin Luther King's last speech before he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee.
You just kind of need to listen to it. So powerful. Somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. His last speech, think about it, was about involved, include, included a discussion of First Amendment rights like assembly and speech and protest, the right to protest. This is his, uh, I might not get there with you, but I've seen the glory and the power of the coming of the Lord, his mountaintop speech. So that quick clip there of Norman Siegel and Ira Glasser was taken at the Brooklyn Historical Society where Norman Siegel was receiving an award of some sort, I, I believe. We went and captured that panel discussion, which is really interesting. A lot of discussion during that panel about freedom of speech, but we were only able to use a few clips. Here Brian Stevenson comes in again, providing some context about the civil rights movement and the importance of freedom of speech and and how they had to fight to speak up, the activists did. This footage of Brian Stevenson was shot by Aaron Reese down in Montgomery, Alabama. So this is the first, we'll come back to Phil Donahue's show a lot during the documentary, but this is the first clip that we have from it. And I love this segment. Phil Donahue and his assistant were generous enough to let us know all those segments on which Ira appeared. And we reached out to NBC Universal to get some screener links of them and found some great moments, including this, in which Hosea Williams, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s lieutenants, explains why it's important to let the KKK have the right to broadcast their message on cable television. Because if you could ban the Ku Klux Klan from cable today, they'll ban civil rights marchers tomorrow. And he talks about how all civil rights marchers or activists need is the freedom to speak out. And they believe their cause is just and the arc of history is long and bends towards justice and they'll win as long as they have that freedom to speak. And he doesn't want to open up the door to censorship. So there was another Phil Donahue clip on which Ira appeared that, or segment or show I should say, and there, Forsyth County, the case uh, about hecklers' videos went all the way to the Supreme Court, and that's some footage of Hosea Williams being pelted with rocks in Forsyth, Georgia. Uh, but one of the other Donahue segments that we wanted to get access to was one about flag burning. But coincidentally, we were told by Donahue's people that that segment was lost in a fire. That footage was lost in a fire, so we weren't able to find it, sadly. Here's Ira in a different outfit. As I can say, we shot these interviews over multiple days, over multiple months. I'm colorblind, but I think that's a green shirt. He was wearing a blue shirt earlier. Most of this footage was shot, you know, by Chris and Aaron. I, I'm sitting behind the camera doing the interview. The three of us did it all, and we learned a lot during the process. I can understand why. Some of these other productions or most of these other productions have a big cruise with fancy equipment and cameras. We didn't have any of that. We just had the three of us, the cameras we had on hand, and we put them in front of our interview subjects, and I think we did an all right job. More footage of Skokie there. Here's another you know, shot of Ira, different setup in his apartment, different shirt. 
Now, it's really hard to kind of keep track of all of the background details that are happening with the Skokie case. As Filippo Strum will say soon, it's hard to keep track of the cases because there were three court cases going, going on litigating this issue. And there were many different ordinances that the village of Skokie passed in order to prevent the Nazis from marching, including one that, as Ira says here, prevented the marching of individuals in military-style uniforms, which had the unintended effect of banning Jewish war veterans from marching in in the city of Skokie, village of Skokie, I should say. So the Skokie case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, where they didn't hear oral arguments, but they essentially said that First Amendment rights are at play here. And it was more or less a statement that Skokie needed to let them rally. And David Goldberger thought this would be the end of the case. You know, the the Supreme Court chimed in. But at that point, it became, as he says here, a national phenomenon. You can see in this next clip, Jimmy Carter's talking about it. He was asked about it during a, a presidential briefing. It's kind of tough to find this footage, but we knew we wanted to show someone referencing Jimmy Carter. So I talked to David Goldberger about this appearance on the Phil Donahue show. I love this segment. The full segment is about 50 minutes. It's worth the watch if you can find it. Uh, We had access to a screener link because we wanted to license the footage, but David Goldberger didn't know what the Phil Donahue show was. He didn't know what the audience was. He thought it was just kind of a small local Chicago talk station. Phil Donahue filmed out of Chicago. So before the segment, David asked, oh, so, well, you know, what's your audience? And Phil told him something on the order of millions, and David was taken aback. And what Phil Donahue didn't say was that he and his producers were going to pack the audience with members or with residents of the village of Skokie. And so it was a bit of an ambush, but David, as you can see, holds his own quite well. It's amazing how similar David Goldberger looks after 42 years, as you can see in the uh, previous footage. He's looks like the same man. He's gone a little gray, but here he is, David, talking about how Phil didn't tell him that he was packing the audience with members of Skokie. And here is our, our man, Ben Stern, who's in the audience asking David a question. This was astounding when we saw it. We had no idea that Ben Stern was going to be in the audience. And we're watching the footage, and holy cow, there he is. And I want to get my tip my hat to Chris Mulpey, our co-director on that, because he found it, and how could you not include it? And here you have, after Ben Stern, another Holocaust survivor saying that David, himself a Jewish man, will be among the first to be shot if the Nazis get their way. And then this man 
rolls up his sleeves and shows Phil Donahue his uh, concentration camp tattoo from Auschwitz Buchenwald. A really moving segment. As Ira will say, you know, who's culturally Jewish, um, you know, he never liked to lecture the Holocaust survivors about the case. He'd explain to them the ACLU and its principles, but he never was one to tell the Holocaust survivors that they were wrong. He didn't quite feel it was his place. Here's Ben Stern. Now, Ben Stern, when we interviewed him, I believe it was 2017, maybe early 2018, I forget. This is was filmed in Berkeley, California, where, as you will see later in the documentary, Ira went to visit with Ben and his daughter Charlene and appear on a segment or a, during a panel discussion at University of California, Berkeley. But uh, this was filmed and Ben was 97 at the time. He just turned 99. 750,000 signatures opposing the Nazis marching or rallying in the town of Skokie, Illinois. Now, this interview with David Goldberger was filmed in Columbus, Ohio. David, up until recently, he's now retired, was a professor at Ohio State's Morris School of Law. And the ACLU of Ohio was generous enough to let us use their offices to film. So that was a longer Skokie segment, our longest, before uh, taking a deep breath here and visiting with William F. Buckley Jr. This is Michael Kinsley, who, longtime writer and moderator of Firing Line, I love watching footage of Michael Kinsley because he has these funny jokes throughout the each firing line show, and you'll see a few more later. I want to I want to do a uh, shout out here to Bernard Goldberg, who is the reporter on the voiceover here. I believe CBS, who told us about this segment where. William F. Buckley was profiled, and later, as you will see, he follows Ira and Buckley along to William F. Buckley's first baseball game. Jay Norlinger was generous enough to sit down for an interview and talk about William F. Buckley in National Review's headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. I love the firing line set in some of these shots, uh, and I have to point out in that last shot, not this one, but the previous one, Christopher Hitchens is sitting on the panel, and Christopher Hitchens is a hero of mine and was a regular appearer on the Firing Line Debates series. No underscore here. We thought that the debates could speak for themselves. Chris Maltby was the editor on this segment. One of the first segments he edited. And there's our guy. Ira Glasser, who I don't remember how many times he appeared on Firing Line, but it was quite often. And he and William F. Buckley were quite the sparring partners. They would go at it.
And Ira will tell you that William F. Buckley bringing him on the show and bringing a lot of liberals on the show, uh, to his credit, had risen, had taken Ira's visibility to the next level. He said it was, you know, these appearances that got him recognized on the subway for the first times. Classic William F. Buckley here with his you know, slow way of speaking with his mid-Atlantic accent. Ira, rough, tough, Brooklyn guy, Brooklyn accent. Hard to believe now that uh, there were just the networks and PBS for much of American history. Now we've got Netflix, Hulu. You can watch this documentary on iTunes and Amazon. And yeah, here's that set of firing line again that I love. I apologize if I'm sniffing a little bit. The weather's changing, so I've got a tad of a cold. Sipping some coffee as well. You might hear that. A classic Ira analogy here. Uh, I'm kind of with Buckley on this one. Uh, I guess it makes sense, but it's not good, especially for CNN. A lot of lines of logic to follow to understand his grass lawnmower analogy. Michael Myers, leader of the New York Civil Rights Coalition, filmed him in his office in Midtown Manhattan. This is... This is a very powerful moment where Ira confronts Buckley about his history uh, with racial issues, something that Buckley dealt with uh, throughout the remainder of his life. This is probably the strongest point of criticism against him that existed. And there they are. Buckley in his New York Mets hat, Ira in his Brooklyn Dodgers hat. I have to suspect that Ira gave him Buckley that New York Mets hat. I can't, I can't think that Buckley bought himself. William F. Buckley played the harpsichord. Some nice footage of that in the CBS footage from Bernard Goldberg's. And there's, uh, man, I'm going to forget this New York. Nets player's name, but Ira won, I think his kids or something, bought him a one-on-one session with a Nets player, and that was some of the footage from it. Ira gave us the footage. Chris is going to kill me for not remembering the name. But it was a good depiction of Ira there playing basketball and knocking down a Nets player of his rough, tough attitude. I love this. Ira and Buckley were great friends, as you will see. Uh, An odd couple kind of harkens back to the relationship that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had with Antonin Scalia, two people who were diametrically opposed on almost every issue. I mentioned almost because you'll see that there was one that they agreed on. But who came together and, and found friendship nonetheless and had a You know, Ira can give to Buckley as as good as Buckley can take, and Buckley can give to Ira as good as Ira can give. And there's Bernard Goldberg there in the center. Buckley, 
I think had been on the subway once or twice previously. And as Ira will tell it, we couldn't fit into the documentary. He wanted to take Ira to the game in a limo, but Ira refused. He said, you don't go to a baseball game in a limousine. I also did not know what lacuna meant. So one of the most devastating parts of making this documentary was that there is footage in this segment of William F. Buckley and Ira going into the baseball game and sitting there watching the game. We had about 50 seconds of it in a previous cut of this documentary, but CBS wouldn't give us the footage unless we got MLB sign-off and the price that MLB was looking for in order to access just one minute of footage footage was astronomical. Let's just put it that way. So unfortunately we had to cut it. And the last shot you see from the segment is them walking down the subway steps, but, um, would have been quite the thing to have included the footage of them in the actual baseball game, more powerful even than the footage that we have of them going into the subway. So I said before that Ira and Buckley disagreed on almost every issue except the drug war. And that'll, I think, surprise a lot of viewers that William F. Buckley was a proponent of ending the drug war. Now, Ira, after he retired from the ACLU in 2001, went on to become the head of the Drug Policy Alliance's board. He was chairman of the board. And Ending the drug war was one of Ira's big passions, even while he was at the ACLU, but definitely in his retired life as well. And I had thought, when we were interviewing Nordlinger, I had thought that Buckley opposed uh, criminalizing just marijuana. But as I subsequently learned that uh, from watching this segment and others is that William F. Buckley, it appears, opposed all drug laws and ending ending the drug war. And Ira got Buckley to do a firing line segment about it. I had no idea Ira had a heart attack in 1999. Or 1998, excuse me. I will say this about Ira. Uh, He was just on the eve of his 80th birthday when we started these interviews. I mean, you would never expect that he's, I think, 82, 83 now. He is a dynamo. He's got a lot of energy, enthusiasm, and he is whip smart. I was very impressed uh, with his ability to recollect things that happened 40, 50 years ago. I can't remember what I did this morning. And here we are exiting the Buckley Buckley segment where Buckley attended Ira's retirement dinner in 2001. I believe it was April of 2001. Could be wrong about that, though. And Ira sat him at his table, the head table. Yeah, April 2001. I believe that's Norman Dorson sitting at Ira's table as well. There's Trudy, Ira's wife. Great archival photos that were given to us by Ira. Such a heartwarming friendship. We asked Ira to read the letter. 
and actually that that footage right there with Ira in a suit was was shot in the fire offices in Philadelphia just before Ira was set to give a speech to our fire student network at the National Constitution Center. And you'll see some of that speech later at the end of the documentary. This is William F. Buckley appearing in his latter years on the Charlie Rose Show talking about friendship, talking about uh, cutting through categorical qualities for friendship and saying, you know, he just likes his friends. And you can have friends from any different background. It shouldn't matter. There was a recommendation from someone that uh, we cut that, but we refused. We licensed it from Charlie Rose. Buckley passed away in 2008, and Ira wrote about it in the Huffington Post, and this is a snippet of that eulogy that Ira wrote about Bill. Don't miss him. Over 12 years ago, it's hard to believe, Buckley passed. Our friends at ABC letting us know that there will be no March in Skokie after all of that. Now, there's a lot of background about why the uh, March in Skokie was called off. Essentially, a bunch of different entities came together to figure out a way to give Frank Collin what he really wanted, which was the right to rally in Chicago, including Marquette Park, which was his original intended rallying location. And David Goldberger, if you, I think I, I did a podcast with him a while back and he kind of explains a little bit more of the background, but there was also a law, I believe going through the state legislature in Illinois that would have made it difficult for Frank Collin to rally anywhere in the town. If, it had passed, and um, they were able to get that law stymied. Ben Stern had bought a gun. He was so afraid of the neo-Nazis, and when he heard that they were no longer coming, he broke it up and threw it in a dumpster. And Charlene, in her documentary, Near Normal Man, delves into that backstory about that gun a little bit more in a compelling way. David Goldberger saying that he thought there would be some bloodshed if the Skokie rally ended up moving forward. As David told me, although we couldn't include it in the documentary, when Frank Collin and his neo-Nazis ended up going to rallying in Marquette Park, or uh, it's either the Rock, Marquette Park rally or another rally elsewhere in Chicago, he put his family in a hotel, left their house uh, because he was worried about what might happen surrounding that rally. So this footage next here from the Marquette Park rally in July of 1978 comes from two documentarians in Chicago. They did two documentaries, Marquette Park 1 and Marquette Park 2, that captured Frank Collins' rallies in that area. And we were fortunate enough to get in touch with them and license this footage. But it's just amazing watching the footage, not only the number of counter demonstrators there, but also how few the neo-Nazis were and 
what an outsized impact they were able to have on the national dialogue, essentially. But also, look at that line of police officers. Now, I'm of mixed feelings about this. Uh, the police presence, that is, because on the one hand, you need to have police there to keep the counter-demonstrators and the demonstrators separated. And as we'll learn in Charlottesville, <laughs> you know there wasn't enough of that. But at the same time, and as my colleague, the co-founder of FIRE, Harvey Silverglade, says, you know, you can't create a desert and call it peace. So you need to find that right balance between providing enough police protection, but also allowing Frank Collin and his neo-Nazis to broadcast their message to their audience, which in this case includes the counter-demonstrators. And the counter-demonstrators need to have the right to broadcast their message, their counter-demonstration, to Frank Collin. And when you look at this footage, you're not quite sure that was able to happen. But even despite all the police presence, there were scuffles, there were some fights, but it was largely peaceful. And you can see the large Jewish community coming out to Marquette Park. And that's the end of Skokie case, but as Philippa says here, not quite. Philippa's coming up. Finally, in the documentary, we talk about the actual size and the resource availability to the National Socialist Party of America, which was very minimal. Frank lived above his apartment, which was adjacent to Marquette Park. And here's the surprise. Frank Collin was Jewish. I believe his father's name was Cohn. And Frank Collin, his name was changed to, to Collin, of course. I believe his father was a Holocaust survivor from Dachau. And Merica Hahn you know, says, I'm not a psychologist. I can't explain why Frank Collin, who himself is Jewish, whose father survived a concentration camp, would become a neo-Nazi. There he is. I'm not a psychiatrist. This is footage from inside Frank Collins' headquarters. The white power short shirts worn by his membership. Talking about cutting up American flag. And this this is the next surprise that Frank Collins was charged and convicted of child molestation and was kicked out of the party. He was in prison for three years. Um, and folks didn't hear much from Frank Collin after he got out of prison. He became a new ager. I don't recall quite what that means. Something about, I think, aliens. Um, but that was Frank Collins' kind of last, the Skokie case, that is, his last moment on the public stage in a real way before being charged and convicted. And here Ira is talking about 
the threat to the ACLU that the Skokie case posed because of the significant drop in membership. Uh, the ACLU is a membership organization. Uh, people pay dues, give the organization money. And when you take unpopular opinions, which of course, as a civil liberties organization, you will sometimes have to do take unpopular positions, I should say, um, you're going to end up frustrating some of your membership. And, uh, you need to accept the cost of that, which in certain cases is the loss of some of your donors. But IRA was able to really bring the ACLU back, and over time, it returned to its previous levels and, and grew exponentially, as we talk about in the summary of the film. When IRA left in 2001, it had a $30 million endowment, and I, I believe offices in every state and most territories. And as Roger Craver, who was brought in by Ira to kind of help figure out the post-Skokie situation, how to recover from it, as he says, you know, a lot of the members, if the organization explained the case for them and the principals involved, eventually did get it. And there was a contingent of its Jewish membership that understood it as well. And we had an archival clip there of one of the articles written about that. And this is the famous clip of George H.W. Bush. Uh, using Michael Dukakis's ACLU support against him. And then in a press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., where Ira you know, holds up his membership card. It's the card that caused all the trouble, all the kerfuffle surrounding George H.W. Bush's discussion. Some great archival here of Ira's speeches uh, that we found from C-SPAN, from other places. Oh, I love this clip. You know, we're we're talking a lot right now about police misconduct, the role of the police in our lives, and Ira here on a very public stage, um, you know, taking a position that a lot of people take now is that sometimes the police go too far in, in catching the good guys and, and end up getting some of the, and catching the bad guys and end up getting some of the good guys. And this is uh, Mr. Lair who recently passed away and and there he is, Rudy Giuliani, in the early 90s, doing battle against Ira. So a lot coming in in that clip. The police issue, uh, Mr. Lair, who passed away, I believe that's his name, and then Rudy Giuliani, a lot of past his prologue, and the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? This is an animated timeline put together by Aaron Reese. Um, of some of the ACLU's most significant cases during Ira's tenure, including the 1989 case involving speech codes at the University of Michigan, which is an important one for the work that we do here at Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And then Charlottesville. The parallels between Charlottesville and Skokie are, of course, uncanny, and you can't really make a documentary that uses Skokie as a through line without bringing in Charlottesville nearer to the end. Aaron Reese, co-director, edited this segment of the film and did a fantastic job. We had to do very little adjustments to this segment after Aaron's first cut.
Philippa Strom, of course, is uh, Jewish as well. So having her here talk about Skokie and Charlottesville, and then, of course, her talking about why it's important that you defend the rights of neo-Nazis, and in this case, white nationalists in Charlottesville, um, I think is all the more powerful than a non-Jewish member of um, our society talking about it. And as you'll hear, Nadine Strawson's father was a Holocaust survivor, too. Now, prior to us making this documentary, Nadine Strawson was kind of my go-to in talking about Charlottesville. I think I recorded one, maybe two podcast episodes with her in which we talk about it. This this footage right here of Jason Kessler, who was the organizer of the Charlottesville rally, came from YouTube, and it can no longer be found on YouTube. I believe YouTube took it out, but either Aaron or Chris were forward-thinking enough to know to download the footage before it disappeared was memory hold. So this might be the only place you can see Jason Kessler calling to arms his white nationalists for the rally in Charlottesville. And here we learn that, of course, the ACLU of Virginia came in to defend the rights of the white nationalists to rally in Charlottesville to protest the removal of the statues much as the Illinois division in 1978 came to the defense of the neo-Nazis who wanted to rally in Marquette Park in Skokie. So it's an ACLU tradition to defend unpopular speakers, as they did here. Uh, The city of Charlottesville tried, much like the city of Skokie, to block or move the rally to a different location. Uh, And it was um, clear that that was done on the basis of the viewpoint of the speakers, and a court blocked it after the ACLU and I believe one other organization got involved and defended them. This is the Friday before the Charlottesville rally, August 11th. Some footage of the Tiki Torch march through the University of Virginia campus. I first visited the University of Virginia campus last year um, and it's hard to envision hundreds of white nationalists walking through with tiki torches. Uh, they, they marched as Nadine kind of tips her hat to without any forewarning to the university officials. We were able to find a lot of footage of this, this march. And then coming up here is the iconic footage, is the archi- iconic footage from Vice News tonight that won much awards. And we were fortunately able to license it from then, and uh, as a result, the their underscore and their icon uh, were able to be removed. Jews will not replace us. You will not replace us. There's that iconic footage. I love it. It's scary. Really, it really brings home kind of the stakes involved. And here's Joel Agora. We he's a Professor in Brooklyn, now former ACLU lawyer. We sat down with him for two hours, maybe. Fortunately, we were only able to include one clip from that interview. But he's making the important point that Ira and Norman make elsewhere, which is it was the fault of the police that Charlottesville devolved into what it became here on August 12th of 2017. There's the tragic footage of Heather Heyer being ran over and many other people being ran over, unfortunately, Heather. 
was murdered. Yeah, as you can see from that footage, as Nadine's saying, there were no police officers around when Heather Heyer was hit. Quite the contrast with what you saw in Marquette Park in that previous footage, and we'll make that contrast more stark here in a moment. There's the picture of Heather Heyer, the location in which she was run down. And Chris Gethard confronting Ira about what happened in Charlottesville. There was a big discussion, as many of you will recall, after the events in Charlottesville about the ACLU's role in defending the rights of people to march, who march with guns. Um, and the ACLU kind of backed off the position that they would do that, but Ira takes issue with that backing off. He says that the Black Panthers in the 60s, you know, the ACLU defended their rights, but and they marched with guns. So Ira wonders if there's sort of a double standard based on the content of the speech. And Ira's addressing a question about incitement standards and, and when does expression become conduct that it falls outside with the scope of First Amendment protections. Des Bishop there, another fairly famous comedian. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people talking about marching with weapons, but we must acknowledge that the, the person who was killed there was killed with a car. And then here's where we make that stark contrast between the police protection uh, the police involvement during Frank Collins rallies and the lack of it at the Charlottesville demonstration. It's amazing footage here of the confrontations in Charlottesville, not a police officer in sight. Here we flash back to August 11th on Virginia campus and Fisticuffs being thrown. Okay, this, um, I didn't know that Susan Bro, who is the mother of Heather Heyer, had spoken out in such a public way about her daughter's death until I spoke with Nadine Strawson on our 100th episode podcast in which she said that she appeared at an event in Chicago with Susan Bro, and Susan Bro was asked about whether the white nationalists should have had the right to assemble and rally and speak in Charlottesville. And she says they should have, despite the fact that her daughter was murdered during that event. And I immediately, after I heard about this from Nadine, had to go see the footage, was able to capture it and include it in the documentary here. Um, and Susan makes the same argument that Ira does. Well, okay, if you stop the white nationalists from rallying just based on the content of their speech, who are those in power going to censor next now that they have that power to censor? So this is a woman saying, you know, that the preamble of the United States Constitution is supposed to protect and promote domestic tranquility. 
but having this white supremacist who's appearing on the Phil Donahue show with Ira Glasser, um, you know, what, what he advocates for does not promote domestic tranquility. But then the white nationalist, I think, without doing, without intending to do so, proves Ira's point, which is that vague terms like promote domestic tranquility is in the eye of the beholder. And this white nationalist, this white supremacist believes that, you know, if only he could eradicate a race from the United States, essentially, then there would be domestic tranquility and there would be no more lawless, he says, which just proves Ira's point that that woman who means well would not get to decide what promotes domestic tranquility. Those in power get to decide what promotes domestic tranquility. Those in power such as President Donald Trump. So we, speaking of the impact of Charlottesville, um, as Philip Estrum is talking about here, we did a survey of, I think, something around 2,500 college students in 2018, asked them if Charlottesville had an impact on their thinking about freedom of expression, and a large percentage of the respondents said it did. I don't remember the exact percentage or the exact language of that question now, but if you go to the fire.org and look at some of our student surveys from the past, you can see it. So, you know, I think Charlottesville in a certain sense um, will shape a generation's, part of a generation's perspective on, on free of speech issues for better or worse. Unfortunately, I think probably for worse if I'm remembering our survey responses correctly. Back with Ben Stern in Berkeley. Uh, and this is kind of when Ben talks about his journey back to the United States and narrates some of his history after surviving the ravages of Europe and the Holocaust and all that entailed, which is just unbelievable. It's unbelievable the tragedies that this man went through, which you can learn more about in that aforementioned documentary, Near Normal Man. And here, we finally bring the shot wide and you see Ira with Ben Stern, that man that we have heard rallying against the Nazis' marches in Skokie for so long. And Ira and he meet. And Ira was nervous going into this meeting because he didn't know how Ben would respond. Ben Stern's essentially his entire family Six brothers, parents, a grandmother. His whole family was murdered. And Chris Maltby was the one who went, and there you can see neuronormalman.org, one of the signs, and that's his daughter, Charlene, who was the director of that film, holding up the sign. Uh, ben Stern showing Ira the, the tattoo. Chris Maltby was the one who went out to Berkeley to film this. He filmed it by himself, which, as any filmmaker knows, having one filmmaker do it, do the video, the audio, especially across the country, is, is quite difficult. So commend Chris and appreciate his his doing that. We're an indie film on a limited budget. You know, there's only so much we can do in this. Look at that. You know, Ira and Ben embracing. This is the only shot we have of the panel at Berkeley locking arms. We were able to find a lot of good archival photos and footage of Ben Stern outside of the footage that we shot at Berkeley. And we were fortunate enough to have good media partners who were willing to license that footage and those photos to us.
flashback here to Ben Stern in the 1970s. this is where kind of Ira and Ben come together and realize that they weren't as far apart on this issue as they thought. The town of Skokie told the Holocaust survivors to stay home, draw the shades, let the Nazis pass. But as I, as Ben learned in his experiences in Europe, that when you ignore Nazis, bad things happen. This monologue from Charlene narrating Ben's trip to confront the white nationalists in Berkeley is quite moving. And then we were able to get from, I believe, Getty some of the photos of Ben going to this rally, this counter-protest, and preparing to speak. Ben Sturm's not staying home. And the ACLU would defend their rights to get out there and counter-protest. There's Ben Stern leading a rally, locking arms with Charlene. Now, we didn't have... I tried to find footage of Ben speaking. I dug through Twitter... I could not find footage of him speaking. I could find footage, or we could find footage of him before and after. But that was the only photo we could find, or photo or video we could find with a microphone in front of him. Look at this photo, the girl crying, Ben explaining his experience in the Holocaust. There's a gentleman in the background who's obviously moved by what Ben's saying. Here's Ben looking at photos of his family members, some archival footage here of some of the Nazi victims. And then the climax. I'm so proud of you. I hope you hear me. I love you. As Ira said, this brought a little bit of wetness to his eye. Philadelphia, that building directly behind Independence Hall there is fire is the building that houses Fire's Philadelphia headquarters. And we're on Independence Mall on the other side of the mall from the National Constitution Center, which is where we regularly host our Fire Student Network Conference. And that's where Ira is speaking right now in their grand hall. First Amendment rights and racial justice, that's what Ira was most known for. There's my boss, Greg Lukianoff, executive producer, sitting next to Yaka Mushangama, who hosts the Free Speech History podcast. And this is, I believe, called Signers Hall and National Constitution Center. Ira looking at replicas, uh, lifelike replicas of the signers of the Constitution.
never allowed race to trump civil liberties principles or vice versa. It's kind of the, it in a nutshell right there. And here's Wendy Kaminer, who's a former ACLU board member, explaining that after the ravages uh, to the ACLU's finances in the wake of Skokie, Ira brought it back and was in a very good place when he retired in 2001. And Brian Stevenson here saying that Ira wasn't just a manager as the executive director. He got out there and was on firing line and in other places being an activist for these rights. And here's Ira speaking with some of our Fire Student Network members after his speech. gave. And here's the thing about Ira is he can speak and he can speak uh, without any notes and put together uh, a very compelling, compelling narrative. And he said he's always been able to do that. Uh, and there's often very few ums and very few tangents. He just gets up there and speaks. And he said it often, or he thought, intimidated some of his some of his opponents, especially during debates. There's my colleague Alicia Glennon speaking with Ira. Okay, the close of the film. We return to Ira's trip. on the subways surrounding that Emmett's field visit. So this is where you get the title of the film, Mighty Ira at the Bat. It was a poem written by one of his colleagues at the ACLU, and it's a play, as you will hear, of a poem written about baseball called Mighty Casey at the Bat. I encourage all of you who are not familiar with the poem uh, to check it out, Mighty Casey at the Bat. His colleague, wrote Mighty Ira at the bat as Ira retired from the ACLU. And his colleague, as Ira will say, was one of the people who voted against Ira becoming the head of the National ACLU in 1978. And this poem is kind of his way of saying, I'm sorry I was wrong, Ira. You did a great job, and congratulations on your fantastic 23-year tenure. And the poem takes you through, essentially, the narrative of the documentary, which is Ira takes over ACLU's in kind of a rough place in the wake of Skokie, but he brings it back. And the musical underscore written by Scott Ryan, Scott and Ryan uh, brings you on that journey as well, starts kind of a bit melancholy and gets more upbeat by the end. And we cut together a bunch of footage that reflect on some of the themes of the documentary, including his, his appearances on Fireline, his relationship with Nadine Strawson, there's Newt Gingrich. Forty Third Street was the location of the ACLU headquarters. Mighty Ira knocked one out. There you go. The title of the documentary. I wanted to call the documentary "The Civil Libertarian" because that's what Ira is. You know, he's a civil libertarian, uh, and you maybe italicize "civil" too with as kind of a hat tip to the debates between William F. Buckley and Ira, but I was told by some of our consultants that some people might think that's too political because they think of the Libertarian Party rather than the Libertarian principles, um, and that might challenge us during distribution. So I believe it was Chris Maltby, our co-producer here, co-director, who recommended Mighty Ira, although Aaron, uh, if I was wrong and that was you, <laughs> I apologize. But I know it wasn't me who came up with the title. Let me just put it that way. End credits, which mix together a, a bunch of the underscore th from throughout the film, including the theme. And here's Ben showing Ira his tattoo. 
and explaining that the triangle means that he was labeled a dangerous Jew by the Nazis and was only allowed to go to certain places within the concentration camps. Third perimeter, I believe he said. <laughs> You're still a dangerous Jew, Ira, and, his, and Charlene Stern say. And ben flashes his tattoo to the camera. I insisted that this next clip go into the documentary. Uh, this is Ira showing us a book. Where did you go? Out. Oh, what did you do? Nothing, which really speaks to his experience growing up in Brooklyn. And then Ira in his Brooklyn Dodgers hat and his jacket with his Jackie Robinson bat. I can still hit this thing, he says. And that was a, you might have missed it, but in that last clip is a portrait of Ira made by a very famous artist and the name of the artist escapes me, but if you rewind it, um, his style is pretty iconic and you might be able to point it out to me. So there we have it, folks. Mighty Ira, released in 2020. The documentary is available to watch now and depending on when you watch the documentary, um, it could be available in different places, but if you go to mightyira.com, you will find where it's available to stream now. So thank you all. And I want to thank Chris Maltby and Aaron Reese, my co-directors for their fantastic work on it. It's really a pleasure. Enjoy. I'm happy for to be finally completed and to share it all with you. I hope you enjoyed as well too. Thank you. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. Mighty Ira is co-directed by me, Aaron, and Chris Maltby, and you can see the different ways to watch the film by visiting MightyIra.com. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode and Mighty Ira, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to this podcast and wherever you watch the film. Reviews help us attract new listeners and viewers. And until next time, thanks again for listening.